Create, connect, communicate. Create, connect, communicate. Magical, enigmatical, gift of gab, super, super, agile, story, story from the space Come well lit. <laughs> Your puppy is so cute, man. She is like very nice. She's amazing, right? She's super, super, like super calm. Super sweet. Yes, I'm very lucky because some dogs are crazy. I know. I, I know. love dogs. I love dogs. Yeah, I saw your line profile picture was a dog. Is that yes. your puppy? No. That's what I do is like I steal uh, people's dogs <laughs> and I take pictures with them. And after I put them on my social media because you see, I, I don't know if you realize, but I don't I don't really show my face that much on social media. Mm -hmm. I can have like some activity linked to my work only on my Twitter once in a while. Like, oh, there is like a screening happening. But I have an issue with social media, you know, I have a huge issue. And to be honest, there is no Facebook, no Messenger on my phone, no mm. Instagram, no Twitter on my phone. Nice. Even though you have to use them, right? For like yes. work and other stuff. Yes, but I pretty much like for me, the only one I use a bit is Twitter. Because on Twitter, there's one thing is uh, I, I don't see people sharing their meals, you know? <laughs> I don't see... Some people do actually. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I know. It's not the not, main thing. It's not the real... Like it's not really made for it. Exactly. You see, yeah. it's, it's, it's like it's not a picture sharing thing. It's yeah. people sharing more their thoughts. And sometimes you, you know, you feel like, okay, so I can, like I said, there's a screening of for my country, like tomorrow at a certain city, and that's it. And this is just what I do with it. My line pictures or even my Telegram picture, this is just dogs. Just stolen dogs. Stolen I love dogs. it. I, I, this is a cute dog. This is my new profile picture. And people are like, it's your dog. No, but <laughs> at least, you know, it's like, it's weird enough. Like, that's amazing. It's, it's weird enough for like, uh, for people to realize that uh, it's me calling them, you know. That's funny. Okay, Mocha, that's your goal in life. Man. Is to get on Rashid Hamid's social media. We're gonna do something about we'll, it. Let's do it. Let's do we'll, it. We'll do something. A little about collaboration it. with Mocha. No problem. I love it. <laughs> nice man. So yeah, and then we'll talk if we can maybe talk a little bit about your background and kind of growing up as well, and and then your brother leading up into it, and then yeah, of course, Paul France and film, whatever. We'll just oh, talk about all kinds of shit. Great. Yeah. <laughs> it feels nice to talk about all kinds of shit. I love it. I love it. Okay, so I'm going to give you a little bit of introduction and we'll just we'll just freestyle. Are you ready, sir? I do. Here we go. Good afternoon and welcome back to another episode of Firelight Chats, where we spark fiery conversations and like a phoenix screeching from the ashes of our curiosity, broadcast the most super, natural, and compelling stories from our Space Lab studio here in Dahan, Taipei, Taiwan. Our distinguished guest for today's episode is a French-Algerian actor, screenwriter, and film director, an auteur who got his first big break at 16, working under Abdelatif Kashish, the acclaimed French-Tunisian director and Palme d'Or winner. In 2017, he released his first feature film, La Melodie, also known as the Orchestra Class, which screened at the Venice and Dubai Film Festivals. Now, in 2023, his second feature film, Pour la France, aka For My Country, 
will hit the theaters in Taiwan on September 28th. Pour la France is a fictional film based on a true story of the director's younger brother, Jalal, who died while serving at Saint-Cyr, one of France's most venerable military institutions. Filming was split between three countries, Morocco, France, and Taiwan, where the director's brother studied at National Taiwan University, NTU, Tai Da, for a few years. As it were, and as you can catch cinematic glimpses of in the film, Taiwan would end up becoming a special place of bonding for the two brothers, not too long before the tragedy that ultimately gave creative birth to this film. As luck has it, the director is back in Taiwan yet again and we're taking this chance to sit down and chat by the fireside, far, deep, and panning out wide, from different angles, under bright lights and gallivanting through the shadows. Freestyle, pour nous, pour sous, pour tout le monde, about whatever comes to mind. So, without further ado, Sugar Sweet Mocha, who's sitting under the table right now, and I present to you for this latest episode of Firelight Chats, the one and only Rashid Hami. Hello. Bienvenue. Marhaban. <laughs> This introduction feels like, almost, uh, feels like almost like a UFC introduction. I feel like I, I'm <laughs> You're getting about to into fight the, the octagon right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it was just in Paris recently. Cyril Gunn. Yes, I heard that. Yes, exactly. Finally. France representing. Finally, France is starting to have UFC. I know. I know. And you just got introduced for yes. your debut. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't feel ready for it. <laughs> I don't think I'm in shape yet. <laughs> okay, a little more training. One or two more training camps and Rashid Hami is going to take though. over. <laughs> <laughs> of training camps. Yes, exactly. So, yes, welcome. Salam alaikum. Welcome. Welcome back to Taiwan. How are you doing, sir? Alaikum uh, salam. Thank you to get me here. I'm so happy to be able to share a conversation with you. And uh, as usual, uh, being in Taipei is uh, is amazing because I'm just enjoying the food and uh, the sweetness of people here. So yes. I'm very happy to to be here for the release of uh, for my country in Taiwan. When did you arrive and how long is this latest trip going to be? I'm leaving uh, on the 23rd. Actually, I, I came here for something else because I was working on a project with Taiwanese people for the post-production. So I came here in uh, July and after I went to Japan, I stayed one month there and uh, I just came back right now. So you're just in Japan? Yes. Okay. How was that? Amazing. Yeah. I think it's my next, like the next city I will like start to freeze myself a bit will certainly be Tokyo. Oh, nice. Yeah. We talked last time and you've told me and we'll probably get into that, but you've spent several like kind of stints of your life in different places around the world, including uh, San Francisco, China, down in Shenzhen, Taiwan, of course, we'll get to that. But now you are revealing to the world that one of your latest inspirations is Tokyo. I love Tokyo. Uh, mm. It's been a long time I love Tokyo. You know, there's many cities I love, but uh, for me to stay there, I have to find a kind of inner purpose, you know? Mm. It's like, okay, uh, you know, I love London, but I'm not feeling like going to live in London at the moment. <laughs> but but I felt like, okay, I can spend some time in Tokyo and mm. see how I feel about it. As long as I don't have kids, I can still do that. And I feel like, okay, let's enjoy this kind of gypsy-like lifestyle as much as possible. Right, exactly. Enjoy while it lasts. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 
how much longer is it going to last? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. It's you know, a mystery. We never decide about uh, <laughs> exactly. when it stops. It's not for us men to decide when it stops. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we'll talk about that too. The power of women, <laughs> oh, which dude, is another dude. theme in the film, uh, underlying current in the film, right? And in life in general. So maybe let's try to go back because we mentioned that you are a French Algerian. And of course, that plays a role, obviously, in your life, in the history of France as well. And then, of course, that spills into Port La France, right? for my country, for France, this film of yours. So what about Algeria? Can you tell a little bit about Algeria? That, I believe, is the country of your birth. Exactly. I'm born there. Algeria was the oldest French colony. It lasts for about a century and a half, which is long. Yeah, exactly. So, so it plays a role when it comes to the confusion of a lot of Algerian people about their own identity. So Algeria was like, after their independence in 1962, was trying to find its way. I think the, the country has chosen to go a path that unfortunately was not the one we needed at the time, you know, because they went to follow the path of communism, of autocracy, you know, in some ways. My mom uh, can tell you that when she was a kid, she remember that there's even Chinese people coming to give over like the Red Book of Mao. Oh, really? In Algeria. That's how communist it was. It was, was the Red Book. The Red Book was there. Wow. And you can see even how the alien system in, in Africa works. Algeria is close to Russia. And even now, no matter what's going on with Russia, they are still like in the same bed with them. So, mm -hmm. so it's, this is what Algeria is in some kind of way. And I think what I have experienced in the 90s is when they try to go through like a change of governance in Algeria. You know, we had like the first Arabic revolution in October 1988, and it was in Algiers. That gave uh, birth to a democratic experimentation in Algeria. You had many political parties. You had the idea of uh, Algeria getting out of this like autocratic system to go through a constitutional like governance you know mm. the first step was unfortunate for the whole algerian society because the islamists won the mm -hmm. election mm -hmm. so after they won the election it was the legislative election so it's like the congress or the senate in u.s you know mm -hmm. also for representative for you guys right exactly <laughs> <laughs> and for taiwanese is the yuan the grand yuan is yes the, the legislative yuan yeah legislative yuan, exactly mm -hmm. so and so the army decided to cancel the election and it took power and it was the start of a big civil war right that lasted for about a decade one of the first chapter of the civil war was the president a guy that was having this ideal for algeria you know they brought him from exile he was in morocco El Watani, um, uh, Budaif, Budiaf, exactly. Yes, right. Budiaf, and Budiaf has was having this dream about this Algeria that was democratic, that was educated, that was. He was just like fighting for one thing. He was fighting for education, for having a modern Algeria. Six months after his like speech about how to make Algeria democratic, modern, and, and responsible power, he has been killed on TV. Yeah, it was crazy too because it's like a grenade bombing. Yes, and another grenade under his chair yes and then someone behind him just him. doing yeah emptying the clip in his mm -hmm. back right yes it was a make they wanted to make sure he will not survive <laughs> yeah it was so brutal and it was aired on live tv exactly and that was an amazing part of your film too that's a very small clip of the film where 
your mother in the film actually sees that scene, right? It's a turning point. After that, you need to leave. It's what my mom decided. It was like, okay, if they kill the president on TV, everything is done. We need to get out of this country. Yes, because I think also, like, I didn't dive too much in it in this movie because, you know, a movie is about what you decide to tell, you know? I didn't want to start to tell too much about this part because it will take two hours on its own. Yeah, it's know? Battle of Algiers. It's, exactly, it's, it's, it's another it's film. A, this is the only good film about the right. Algeria. Exactly. It's the Battle of Algeria. Exactly. It's <laughs> It's an amazing film. And it's That's like, right. It's, it's, anyways, and so my mom was like threatened by Islamists. She was opposing them when she was working and she, she had her life threatened. Our house has been shot in the middle of the night. So we went through a lot already wow. before she see Budjav being shot on TV. After that, she was like, oh, forget it. We leave. And I have found my old passport. We left like, I don't want to say something stupid, but we had our visa the day after she went to get the visa for us to leave. Oh, wow. And we left like, I don't know, 10 days after Budjav died. Really? Really, really. I still remember because the city of Algiers was really weird, you know. We went through so much. The Islamists took over the street for a long time. They were camping. In the streets of Algiers, the yes. capital. Oh, that's scary. We speak about like hundreds of thousands of people. Wow. In different places in the streets of Algiers, they were like living in tents and threatening Everyone, basically. Everyone, pretty much, yes. You can see that on TV if you like. Right. Take a look on YouTube. It was a really insane moment. And therefore, you know, we felt like, okay, it's time to leave. You know, it's really time to leave. So we left. How old were you at this time when you left? I was seven years old, seven and a half, actually. Okay. I was, I was moving to my eight years old. I think for us, it's here where sometimes I feel like there's something in common with, with some Taiwanese people. Is for us, going to France didn't feel like going to a foreign country. Mm. It felt like I was going to a different city in my country. So it's a very strange thing, but this is exactly what it is. It's like the reminiscent feeling that comes from discolonization. Yeah, we 150 years of colonization, right? So we speak French. We watch TV, it's French. We watch the news, it's French. My mom, like she often says, she's born French because my mom is born in 49 and in 49, Algeria was still French. Right. So you see, when we arrive and we traveled so many times to France as kids. Do you remember that time when you were leaving? Was it just like kind of another travel? Was it another trip to Paris or? No. Or was it? Oh, okay. It was serious. It you was felt serious. the gravity. Oh, yes, because uh, we left without luggage. You know, my mom, she asked my grandma, actually, to bring us. She took a flight that was a few hours before ours. My grandma is the one who went inside this plane with us. And we just had small backpacks. And I think in the backpacks, it was like kids' backpacks, you know. What kids, like, decide to take with them is a few toys. Right. The small toy pistol. Exactly. And it's for that there is this scene about this pistol. Yeah, exactly. Because it tells a story, you know. This guy leaves Algeria armed already. Right, exactly. Even <laughs> as a kid. Even as a kid, he's like ready to go to war, actually. It's this first thing. Is it in my... I take my gun with me. I love it. I love that symbolism in your film. And not only that, but that scene before that, cinematographically, was a really beautiful scene with the shadows. On top of the roof, the shadows, the laundry hanging... Mm -hmm. You shooting your brother, I guess. No, him shooting Oh, me. him shooting you. Collapsing, your mom coming. That was just such a beautiful scene from a film perspective. I tried sometimes, you know, the bet of a movie like this one is because we have three countries, three places, three times. Is to keep some unity. And mm. uh, sometimes I allow myself to take some freedom when it comes to the style I can shoot the movie. 
And this scene was allowing that. Mm -hmm. Because symbolically speaking, seeing him shooting his brother means something important for the future of the movie. Yes. It's like how Ismail has been sacrificed socially, mm -hmm. you know, yep. for Aisa to succeed. Exactly. And for me, shooting that as a normal scene, seeing a kid just playing this way was poor. Right. It was too too direct. And if it's too direct, we start to lack some mythology to it. And movies about symbolism and mythology sometimes. So to create that, I have decided to film in shadows. And I remember at the beginning, I wanted to do those shadows on the the bed sheets that were like floating, you know. But this night we had the issue with street lights that were supposed to be turned off in Morocco. They didn't turn them off. And so we had to reset everything and to do it on the walls. Oh, At the really? beginning, I wanted to do it into something a little bit less straightforward. Than right. That. Oh, that would have been amazing. I mean, the idea sounds perfect. Cinema is about idea that you cannot <laughs> execute. And then what you need. <laughs> you, have, you know, the idea always, are always better than reality. Exactly these constraints that pop up like the city not turning off the lights when you want to film i mean i give you an example it's like what we say with actors is like sometimes they send me frustrated i come on set i'm frustrated i'm most of the time frustrated and they are like what's wrong with you why are you always frustrated you are so oh like so annoyingly frustrated we see your face you are never happy It's of course, because shooting a movie is about how day by day, minute by minute, the whole environment, people around you are destroying the dream you made about this movie. Exactly. This image that you have in your head, you have a perfect shot and then... You cannot. <sighs> there's too many things in your way. Yes, it's what it is. So it's for that when I start to grow up, I start to understand many things about filmmaking process and, and the fact that, okay, it's either you, you accept that you are going to do something so simple that no matter what's happening, you can execute. You can execute. Mm. But if you want to be ambitious. Exactly. You have to understand that even if you have all the money of the world, even yeah. if you have all the resources financially you need, you are always going to face this kind of situation. Exactly. The only director that never faced that was Akira Kurosawa, I think. Oh, wow. Because Kurosawa. you know how he shot. He shoot his movie. It was like, he shoot one day, he goes and says, oh, I don't like this scene. We have to reshoot it. And so one shot, I give you an example of high and low by the river with the garbage floating on the river and the guy coming by was one week of shooting. Oh, really? One week of shooting for that shot. They spent one week doing it. Oh. It's not good enough. Not enough garbage. Too much garbage. No, the guy is not coming at the right beat. The shot is too slow. The shot is too fast. The guy is speaking too fast. They have to have a stop here. It's like the headache completely here. That's why he's a master. Exactly. <laughs> He has the time to be a master. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Back in those days, right? The black and white, long shots, wide angles, so beautiful. I mean, this is the... <laughs> so poetic. It is poetic, but can we do that nowadays? I feel like... Uh, I know, it's so hard. I don't see any places you can still have this kind of freedom mm. to create. I mean, in the US, you still have a lot of money to do things, but this money is really invested in green screens. I know, I was about <laughs> to say that. The more money, ironically, the more money we have nowadays, it just goes more and more indoors, right? Yes. Into studios. Yes. And and the, the studios just get bigger and bigger and try to, you know, kind of take out all of those other variables, right? As much as possible. It's about control. At the end, you have trying to control, but when you control too much, there's no more poetry. In, in exactly. You take away that magic. Yeah. Because as I mentioned, I that was one of my favorite scenes, actually. You know, as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, that's beautiful. But then now hearing, you know, your vision of what that scene 
was supposed to look like, it blows my mind. That idea, anyway, is is so beautiful. Yes, I mean, you know, doing a movie is about every day when I go to shoot uh, the Algerian part, I was thinking about a Taiwanese filmmaker. So it's the speech I made in my mind, pretty much. It's like the Algerian part has to be Taiwanese in style. Ooh. So in my mind, I was a lot thinking a lot about Edouard Yang's movies. Actually. Of course. Master. Great, great filmmaker. And as weird as it is, I think Taiwanese people discovered this film very late. Yeah, exactly. It's the West discovered it first and then came back to Taiwan. It's like, wow, he's from Taiwan. He's yes, good. It's really crazy. I heard that they start to see his movies in late uh, 2015, something like that. Which is a shame because he's an absolute genius. He's the best Taiwanese filmmaker. Yeah. Period. I mean, uh, no one can like contradict this. You know, if you take a look at a brighter summer day, mm. you take a look at E. E. Yep. You take a look at Terrorizer. Mm-hmm. Type stories. Mm-hmm. Type stories mm-hmm. very relevant nowadays. You know. Hundred percent. And uh, yes, I was looking at these movies and I was very impressed by the fact that he was having those wide shots. You know, and I was like, okay, let's try to keep as much as possible of those wide shots in Algeria with a certain distance because it will be unexpected from a film like this. Yes, exactly. That was another one of the early scenes that I really loved, which was the father was taking the two boys on a little walk in his gendarme uh, uniform, eating ice cream. And that scene was one of those really wide shots. And you can really kind of take in the mise-en-scene, the ambiance, the feeling of Algeria, which actually was Morocco, as you mentioned. Yes, and this area was, it was the most French area of Morocco. So therefore, it was the most Algerian part of Morocco. Right, 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 right. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, because this place was uh, a compound, old compound from the French army. Mm. So the whole like building sitting and how the the style of the buildings, how they look like, everything was made like in Algeria this time. Right. Like French colonial period. French North colonial Africa. Period. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So that's why we shot there. And you see sometimes like a shot like this one is one shot. It has to look simple. It has to look almost like super easy, super classic in some ways. But what a headache to do, you know. I know. I can imagine. It's like, this is the kind of moment when, you know, it's like you speak about the shadows, it's just one shot too. It's like there's a lot of one shot scenes in the movie that are very discreet, very, I don't want them to pop out. I don't want my directing, my blocking to be too obvious. Mm. I think it has to be behind the character. So to achieve this balance was always like some kind of uh, it's really a craft and very difficult to maneuver and negotiate. We try, you know, maybe I will do it better, but you can tell like there's some guys that are very good at this. When you take Roma. Roma, classic film, yeah. Roma, I mean, what he does with his like past story and the way he shoot it and when you see those long shots, how mastered they are, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. But there's a big but. They rebuilt everything to be perfectly setting his blocking. Mm. So this guy actually had this control of the whole story. And right. I think it's the dream for every filmmaker. And this guy did his movie like Kurosawa used to do them. Right. So he arrived, there's a huge parking and say, okay, we're going to rebuild the city of my of my youth. And you see like for four months, the guys are building it. Oh man. They're looking to every archives in the city, how it was before picture. They start to do this crazy investigation for almost a year mm. before they start to rebuild it exactly how it was. And they there's a small thing in this is they build it to suit his directing. So you build all the rest of the set around this like location. And I think this is why Roma is such a beautiful piece of cinema because they made it in such a classic way. 
Mm. So why did you film in Morocco rather than Algeria? We couldn't. You see, the, the first thing that I suffered with, and I remember that, was to find the two kids. And at the beginning, we were wondering, do we want kids from Algeria or do we want to look for kids in France? So we started to look for kids first in Algeria, but had big doubt about it. Those doubts were raised by the fact that kids of my age around the 90s were speaking French perfectly. Mm. We are kids that grew up before terrorism, before Islamist radicals. We also are kids that come from Algeria. Year. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the that, capital. The capital. But during terrorism, many people just escaped their mountains and village to come to Algeria. So, the population of Algeria drastically changed. A lot of them didn't speak French or barely speak French. And so, looking for kids there that speak French fluently at this moment, it was very challenging. That's interesting. So we stopped our investigation into this, you know, mm. and we started to look for kids in France. And this is another struggle too, because in France, we need to find kids who are Algerian, right? who speak French, but still have this thing that comes from the 90s that looks like in their education, their parents, how they have been brought up, you know. And so we found those two kids of five and seven years old and uh, we are like, okay, we're going to do the movie with them. We wanted to go to Algeria. You know, but Algeria with COVID was uh, in a state of chaos that you can't imagine. So we had first like a conversation with the, the people who gave us the right to work with kids because it's highly regulated in France. Right. And they were like, you think we're going to let you take kids in Algeria? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> During COVID. <laughs> During COVID. And I was like, yes, it's like, yes, you, yes, in your dream. <laughs> Never. So the first thing was like, you know, we couldn't take this kid there. So, so which to me seems logical, you know, if, if, <laughs> to be honest, the problem is like, I am a director. So of course I will try to have my way. Sure. Yeah. If it's, you can, if yeah, I why can, not? You no, know, why not? You know, it's like, it's not my fault. They, sh- they should say no to me. <laughs> exactly. It's how That's I right. see it, you That's know? That's right. They should say no to me. And uh, they said no. And I was like, okay, it's fair. I understand okay. them. <laughs> and my producer was like, you think I'm going to let you take kids in Algeria? I was like, yes. He was like, never. Nah. <laughs> like, there's one thing that I will never do is that. I was <laughs> I like, <laughs> Such a liability. <laughs> exactly. So, so, so we end up like looking for solutions in Morocco. And in Morocco, it was during COVID and we surfed during this shooting oh man yeah i mentioned to you before that the only place i've been in morocco is to tangier and it turns out that that's where you shot a lot of the scenes Mm -hmm. okay which scenes were in tangier Uh, the apartment was in tangier the roof was in tangier the apartment's amazing the apartment was a french french guy owning it still living in it and he took care of it and he kept it exactly like a french place you know and not because people don't understand but there's a big difference between algeria and morocco yes that's huge you know you can have something extremely arabic everywhere in morocco is part of their culture but in france if i show pictures of my house in the 90s it could have been a french house We have a French architecture. We have something that is so similar to French that we had it to find this thing in Africa with like the, the feeling that it's old and it's coming from, you know, the 50s, 40s or earlier. Right. And this guy was having this house and uh, we shot there. We had to rearrange it. It was so hard to find what we needed. But... Uh, Ultimately, it's where we shot. And uh, after that, we went to Kenitra, the military compound of the Maréchal Lyoté. Okay. And this house that was a Haussmannian house style, like in Paris. Yeah, right. Was exactly what we needed. 
because mm. Algiers is full of this kind of places. And so we went to shoot that outside over there. Okay. Those are the two locations or? No, there's another one for the beach, but the beach we, we the beach we suffered too, because you see the beach. Oh, the beach scene, right. Because I've been to Tunisia, to Hamamet. And it actually reminded me of that because it's kind of flat and you can walk for quite a while without going very low. It's, it's, it's the Mediterranean Sea. Yeah. But the thing is, we reshot the scene because the first time we went to shoot it was in the Atlantic Ocean. Oh, that because side. It, it was in Tangier, near Tangier. Okay, right. A small village with a very uh, almost wild kind of beach. And um, I went to shoot that. And uh, when I arrived, the ocean was crazy. Huge waves, three, four meters high. <laughs> And people have the hard time to imagine, but this is how Morocco is. You have huge waves. This is a, this is a moment where the Mediterranean Sea and the Atlantic Ocean meet. So right. you exactly. have some weird things happening there. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we couldn't shoot our scene correctly because it was too dangerous. The kid couldn't go inside. And, and I have to tell you something, uh, shooting water is like a nightmare. Really? Yes. That scene was so difficult. Yes, it's always difficult to shoot in water. And salty water. <laughs> salty water. And also, mean, like, you know, the guy that plays the father is a guy that is uh, pretty much two meters high, two meters point something. Yes. So imagine if the water comes here to him. The kids, were they were really in water, you know. They were there, you know. And the scene has to be believable because it's about education. It's about how he's raising them. Exactly. It's the rough way that he's raising them. It's a great scene. We try to like give you an understanding of this character. He's preparing his kids to go to war. Yes. And obviously the water has a very deep symbolism for the whole story, obviously. Of course. Yeah. I mean, Taipei is always underwater, raining. And uh, in France, we have these scenes there also in the, in the beginning opening of the film. Mm -hmm. Water has a meaning for all of us. I mean, if you think about like great thinker like uh, Bachelard, who speaks about water as a philosopher and they try to give us different ways to see water. Water is, is a source of life, but also of death. And also water as another symbolic is when we take like Greek literature, what separates the dead and the living is the sticks and it's a river. So river water sticks. always have from all times for all kinds of culture is a place where, you know, is a transition between two places. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like the world of the living and the world of death is in water that takes place. So I try to use this symbolism of water as much as possible, especially because he lost his life in water. Exactly. The opening scene. So was Algeria slash Morocco the first place to be filmed? Yes. Okay. And then you move from there back to France. Yes. Okay. And I think that's actually a perfect segue into your story as well. You said that when you were seven years old, you took off with your grandma to Paris, I'm assuming. No, we went to the banlieue because... Uh, yeah, the banlieue, which mm -hmm. is the suburbs outside of the ring. This, like, I will take this big sentence from Thierry Henry. You know, last year you had like some uh, like British supporter of, uh, of a certain team. They went to Stade de France and they got robbed and aggressed. And Thierry Henry was like explaining to the UK television on BBC, you know, guys, Stade de France is not in Paris, is in 93 in Saint-Denis. And this is not Paris. Exactly. So it's 93. It's not the same thing. And so we went there. And uh, I think for us, it was violent because we have been downgraded socially. Right. From Algeria to, you can't even go into Paris, no. which is the whole French story, right? The whole Parisian story, mm -hmm. which is that ring. The immigrants especially get pushed outside of that ring. Always. Yeah. Because the story is even worse than that. It's like at the beginning, those housing projects were built in the middle of nowhere, like a bit far from the city, but not too far for people to be able to come to work. 
Exactly. Because African people have been brought to France after the Second World War to rebuild France. Cheap labor, you know. So it's the same story as in US with the Mexicans mm -hmm. and the Chinese in, mm -hmm. in, in San Francisco, for example. They bring them there. Yes. They tell them, you're going to work for us for pretty much nothing. Mm -hmm. And after that, whoa, there's so many immigrants. Hey, no, this is not immigrant. For most of them, they have kids that are born here. They are all like French or they are American in the case of of California that right. I as an example, you know, but these people are born here and slowly and slowly they created these cities. So that's where you grew up in the banlieue, in the, the suburbs. Yes. What was that like? Let's take it from the beginning. We grew up and let's say that we grew up in great poverty because my mom used all her savings to buy a, a small toy store when she arrived because it was the only way for her to be a legal migrant. Oh, I see. Okay. And we know that this store was pretty much going to bankruptcy, but it was for her the first step right. to get there. Therefore, she tried to keep this store open and she was pregnant of my, my little brother. And uh, when she gave birth for him, she was like trying to manage those two things. So I found myself taking care of my brother, changing diapers, giving like his milk and everything. So it was my first experience of parenting. <laughs> and that's why I don't have kids yet. <laughs> and you see, and after we grew up in great poverty because my mom couldn't make it alone. Uh, she had three kids and uh, she was working like crazy. So she could have worked as a teacher, but it was impossible to raise her kids and work as a teacher at the same time. So she needed to find a job where she can take her little kid. So when she was uh, a student, she was working as an assisting nurse. So she started to do that, helping this old lady and she started to work for her. So she was bringing my little brother with her to work and working for this old lady you know taking care of her and things and this is uh, the way we grew up it's like at the red cross for christmas and having food given to us once a week i remember we were buying bread on loan so i go see the the, the bakers like oh we cannot pay but we're gonna pay you in two weeks or three weeks for at the time it was uh, un français compte uh, one franc and a half which is uh, about 40 cents of a euro wow because we didn't have them at the time right so we grew up like that and this thing has had different effect on my brother and i me i became angry mm. and him he became determined to be successful That's interesting. This is Jalal yes. that we're talking about. Okay. How much younger is he than you? Two years and a half. Okay. So academically speaking, he decided that he was going to do something great. And me, I was like just... Just too, angry. Just angry. Yeah. So I did some small shit, you know. Yep. And uh, Jalal was the role model of the family. And me, I was like the, the, troublemaker. the bad kid. <laughs> the troublemaker. <laughs> But we need a troublemaker in the family. Exactly. It's a and, very important role. Yes. <laughs> so so it's, we grew up this way. And uh, I think it shaped us into no matter what happened, going for what we want. Mm. And uh, when I reached 14 years old, I remember I started to really, I wanted to make happen my dream to make movies. When you were 14, 14. 14 years old. Yes, I was like, I want to become a, a storyteller, a filmmaker. And uh, I remember I was in, in the ghetto in school because let's keep it like how it is. Let's it's keep really, it real. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really the ghetto. The ghetto. Yep. Like, you know, the only thing they were proposing us in school, like as an option for our future was uh, to become a plumber, a baker, to fix cars. Right. Like, and me, I, I went to see them like, okay, what do you want to do? And I was like, I want you to make movies. <laughs> and I remember their face. They look at me like strange and they were like, wait a minute. They want to bring other teachers and people from the, the school. Say it again. And they make me say it again. They start to laugh. And I look at them. I was like, you know wow. what? You can laugh. 
But I remember I was 14 and a half and I was like, no, you can laugh, but it's not because you didn't make your dream come true that I will do the same. Oh, shit. <laughs> and I was like, it's just sad that this is the way you live, but it's not my way to live. So wow. I decided to do it. That's impressive. Okay. And I meet among this teacher, there's one old lady that is pre-retired. It was her last year. Mm. And uh, she come and see me and say, if you want to do that, you, you have to be serious about it. I was like, I want to be serious about it, but I don't know how to start, but I'm serious about it. It's like, okay, but come and see me every Wednesday because we were not having school Wednesday afternoon. And she was keeping me from 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. to help me write. Oh, wow. To teach me how After to class, really write. Just kind of intense training. Yes. Like side training. Side training. In the ghetto. And she was doing that for me. As she's about to retire as yes. well. That's impressive. What kind of training? What kind of writing? She was giving me books and uh, we were reading these books and I, I started to write, like, imagine the end of the story. Or she was like, give me a story you want to tell. And I still have a copy of the first thing I gave her. I kept it. I saw it no in my house last way. time. It was so bad. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know, you, you have to start somewhere. You have, and to, I, yeah, you, you have to show where you came from, right? <laughs> when I see where I start, I was like, shit. I couldn't believe that is, that's even possible. You know? How bad was it? Oh Explain. shit! It was bad. Was not. Was not. It's not even well. the right word. Yeah. No, it was a catastrophe. It was. A, you know, if I have to put it, is like a tragedy. A tragedy. It's what? a tragedy to be so bad. What was the story about? It was a shitty story about this girl who lost her father in a car crash. Huh. And uh, all of the sudden, she has to, we have to explain why she she's okay and what's going on with her. It was a bit of a fantastic story, you know. Mm. It was not really realistic at all. And this girl was having like some kind of condition. And after I gave her my first draft, it was just the beginning of the story. It was so bad. I never <laughs> even thought about writing the, the end this, of it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but but you see, it's, it's like she has been there. Huh. And the, the year after, I was supposed to go to high school. Because that happened, I'm in middle school. Right. And in high school, they don't find an available seat for me. There is no way they they can take me to high school to okay. do what I want. So they tried to send me to a professional high school to do accounting. And my mom was like, there is no F way for you to do that. Do you think I will let that happen? You're going to study. You're going to go to university. I was like, ah, nobody cares about university. I will make movies. I was like, you're going to make movies by doing accounting? <laughs> Mm. It's like, it's like they, already you have a shitty dream and now you have like a <laughs> shitty path together. <laughs> so she takes me back to middle school and she tell them you keep him. I was like, but already... I'm finished. I finished middle school. You are going to go back. Whoa. She threw me back in middle school. That's what happened. Are you serious? That's crazy. Yes. You went back. Because you had nowhere to go, basically. She was, you are not going there. So you have nowhere to go. If you have nowhere to go, you go back. Oh, shit. So you went. You went did back. another year. Back yes. in middle school. Yes. Oh, wow. Uh, the crazy part of it is to get out of, when you get out of middle school, there is a degree that you have to pass. Okay. So if you don't have it, it doesn't matter that much. But if you have it, it helps you for, you know, to get a better high school. The drama is I had this degree. Nobody knows how I got it. Even me, I don't know how I did <laughs> get it. But you see, I had this degree. So I went back with the degree already. It's like you're going back to university in after the same class graduate. after you graduated. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. For a whole year. Yes, so I went back. How was that year like? Was it a complete waste of time or in retrospect, was there no. some kind of silver lining there? Or was this just... No, it's beautiful. I mean, it's, it's, it's the beauty of destiny. 
Because I go back, the teacher that used to help me, she's retired. And I meet this history teacher. She's uh, 10 years old, older than, older than, than us than okay. us at the time, you know. So young teacher. Very young teacher. Yeah. Very funny teacher. She was uh, very different from some teacher we had that were very judgmental and demeaning towards us. She was like more of a person that was trying to leave her dream to be a teacher. Mm. And for her, being a teacher was, how can I help these kids do something out of their life, you know? Mm. And this woman was the best friend of Abdelatif Keshish, assistant director, Sylvie Per. at the time. I see. And so everybody knows my dreams. Everybody see this retired teacher coming to help me still every Wednesday, even if she's not working there anymore. Oh, that retired teacher kept working with you. Yes. Wow. Okay. So I was still like doing this. Uh, this dream of yours. I was still in this it, crazy you know? kid, like following his little passion. No pity. Right. And so therefore we are in May and she was like, oh, Abdelatif Keshish is doing a movie. And I talked to his assistant about you. Do you want to be a slave, bring coffee and see how, how things work? I was like, I'm going to be the best slave they have seen in their life. Oh. So I go meet her and I'm like, okay, I want to be a director. So give me anything to do. I will do it. Give me any mission. I'll be our guy, you know? Right. I'll be our guy. Give me a mission. Okay. And she was, okay, uh, great. But I take you as an AD. And so I was like, wow. I'm AD. Like trainee. Like the, you have a salary. I think at the time it was 300 euro months. But it, you were still, you were getting paid as a super, super junior AD. Yes. With one of the, who ends up becoming one of the greatest directors. <laughs> it's really funny. It's insane. Really. So she sees me and she tells me, okay, since you're going to work 16 hour a day and you're going to be paid 300 euro, maybe it's good if you do some uh, job as a, as an extra. So you're getting pulled into another role as well. I was like, what is, what is an extra? I was like, you just sit in a classroom. If you ask you something between texts, you bring it, but at least, you know. Yeah. Right there, you're an extra. I, was like, I don't have to say anything. He's like, you have nothing to say. I was like, amazing. So I, I am like, okay, I do my thing. I say, okay, take me as an extra. And she, she filmed me and she tell me, asked me a few questions. And after she said, okay, go home. And so I'm like, okay, great. I'm going to be an extra and I'm going to be a slave. And it's perfect. It's what I need to start, you know? Yeah. And you're getting paid too. And I'm going to make uh, some money. Yeah. So... Three days after, I receive a phone call from Keshish and he tells me, okay, I saw your thing and uh, I want to tell you, you need uh, to come to see me today at uh, 5 p.m. and uh, uh, you're going to be an actor. He's like, no. <laughs> you said no. I said, no. <laughs> me an actor? Are you crazy? <laughs> I, I want your job. I want to be a director. I want to be a director. I don't want to be yeah. an actor. He's like, uh, like, yes, yes, yes. We're going to talk about it. So I come and meet him. I tell him, you know, your thing about actor, I don't know what's wrong with you, but you, you are making a mistake. And I'm like, you are making a mistake. You should just take me as a, as a slave. I, I can bring you coffee. I can take notes for you. I can do anything. Just ask me. Yeah. You're going to shoot in the ghetto. I come from the ghetto. You're going to be, you right, know, right, right. no problem. I can take care of the kids that come here. What do you want? He's like, you're going to be an actor. And I was like, why do you want to make me to <laughs> you, you want to make me do that? And the guy's like, if you want to be a good director, you have to understand actors. If you don't understand actors, you are never going to be a good director. Oh. And if you are an actor, you will understand them better than anyone. And you will understand how to get to them, how to talk to them, how to help them get the best out of them. If you are not an actor, you will never understand that. If you are never like facing this, you will never understand it and you will never be a good director. And here I am. I say, okay, well, so I'm going to be an actor. I was like, but if I'm bad, don't get mad at me. Right. Because I think still it's a mistake. <laughs> I still think it's a mistake. 
And the, the tragedy is that I'm starting to, to find myself with these actors, all of them, all these kids that really want to be there. And Keshi should give us like, okay, we're going to shoot at this date and we are all here. Three months later, all the kids disappeared. Just two of us left. The lead role, the guy oh. and me. And the whole people that were there, all the kids that were taken for this movie have been like kicked out. And there's a bunch of new kids coming in and everything is postponed for one year. And we found ourselves into this place. I felt like I was in like some kind of uh, music TV show nowadays, you know, where you don't know if you're going to make it until the end. Oh, I see. <laughs> so I was like, we are all 15, 16 years old, 14, 15, 16 years old. And every week we are less and less. And uh, we are two survivors from the previous actor that all have been confirmed. <laughs> and all those kids. And we are here with all those new kids. And each day we are like, are you going to keep us or this is uh, for you to play with us? Right, right, and right. And I'm like, and me, I'm saying that, you know, I don't care, but just keep me for the coffee. Right, exactly. I still want to be the slave. I'm here for that. Yeah, right. It's my priority, you know? And so at the end, there's this girl that's supposed to be the lead role that leaves all of the sudden. She's like, I don't want to do theater. It's not my thing. And she's like, and it's not my thing to act. Actually, I don't like it. So bye-bye. And she leaves three weeks before. And Sarah Forestier, who had the small part, and she was like playing my girlfriend. Oh, she was your girlfriend. Okay. In the movie. You know, we yeah. are supposed to be together. Yes. She's pushed for this role because she had less things to do and it doesn't have to destroy all the work he did with others. I so see. So it's better to put her there. Right. And to put her intensively to work. That's amazing because she's gone on to be a pretty successful actress. Exactly. She's a freaking amazing actress. Yeah. Like, you know. This from, is amazing. From all the actors uh, you can talk about. She's really craft-wise, one of the best. And we, we all say that in France, you know, she has some issues, so she's on and off. But when you put aside the issues, when she's on set, she shines. She killed them all because yeah. she's truthful. Mm. Everything she does is so real, you know. Mm. And I think I found myself like that in Les Kiv, looking at those young kids. We're all kids. And I was a bit the older brother. And um, Keshish gave me the responsibility to take care of the theater side. And uh, without understanding it at the time, I was already doing a little bit of a work that I have to do as a director. It's like we have to bring people, we have to rehearsal, I have to be responsible for them to rehearsal theater. I have to take care of uh, their drama. I have to help them when they are struggling with their dialogues because we're all struggling together. We mm. have to rehearsal sometimes alone. And all of this was actually already a process where I'm learning something that will define who I am nowadays. That's crazy. That was Kashish's, I believe, second film, L'Esquive. Yes. And it was uh, famously kind of a low-budget film, you know, like a experiment, as you say. 450 euros. 450 euros, that's it? 450,000. Okay, okay. I was like, holy shit. I'm tired. That's a big... I I, I said the word K in my mind. but It's 450,000 euros at the time, yes. Right. And it did really well and and launched the career of Sarah as well. Not just Sarah. It launched the career of Sarah, of Sabrina, and mostly of Abdel, you know. After Leskiv, Keshish was finally seen as a director. Right. Because if we give him just 450,000 for his second feature is because people were not seeing him there yet. It was unfair. And even nowadays, you know, I think he went through a lot of uh, weird things happening around him. Just to be fair, he is someone who is totally devoted to his uh, craft craft and his arts. And so therefore, I have this uh, infinite respect for his work. Infinitely also grateful 
for him to give us the chance to start. And uh, I never forget that if you see how many people coming from very like modest families, from modest backgrounds, mm -hmm. have been brought by Kishish to make cinema in an impactful way. Just that as a legacy is crazy. Yeah. That's a that's a crazy way to start your <laughs> start your journey. Well, but my journey was amazingly starting because also after that I can tell you how much I earned. I worked like for almost a year and I earned uh, one thousand five hundred euro. So I say that because it's very important part of the story. Mm. With this one thousand five hundred euro, I buy a MacBook, a Mac, an old Mac, you know, the, okay, the, the a desktop Mac, the, desktop Mac, and uh, I ask my mom to take a credit card and to pay for a camera and small tapes, and uh, I start to shoot a short story, my first short story, my first short movie with my friends from from my city, you know, from Pierrefitte. Mm. At the same time, I have these guys that do rap music that come and see me and say, hey, Rashid, can you please edit our footage where I was shooting a small video clip? Right, a little music video. Music video. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm, I'm doing that in my bedroom. They give me 100 euro for doing that. Oh. With this money, I have money to shoot my small short story, you know, buy some food, buy some bus tickets, buy some things, you know, to do it. Right. But I'm still short on cash. At the moment I'm shooting that, there's another person that come into my life. And this person is the most important person in my life, my professional life. How old were you at this time? I was 17 and I met Arnaud Desplechins. Maybe, you know, for me, there's four big French directors. It's uh, Kechiche, Desplechins, Audiard, and, mm. and, and I think you can put Beauvoir at this time. And Desplechins, I think from all the French directors, is the one that has the biggest amount of movies in competition in Cannes, like seven or eight. Right amazing pieces of cinema. So I meet Arnaud Desplechins by accident because I was supposed to meet another guy. And uh, Arnaud Desplechins and I, we start to talk about the war in Iraq. And I was explaining why, at the time, I was explaining why I feel like the dictatorship of Saddam Hussein, as well as it seems now, right. uh, was much better to keep in place than going there, trying to pretty much we're going to create terrorism and right. because it comes from my scars from Algeria when I saw that happening. And here we are after with, you know, ISIS being born and everything that mm -hmm. happened with it. Mm -hmm. But uh, we were debating about this question about, you know, what it means. And at this moment, he offered me a role in huh. his movie Kings and Queen with Catherine Deneuve, Mathieu Amalric, Jean-Paul Rossillon, wow. big, big, you know, big uh, Emmanuel De Vos. And I find myself like doing this And for me, it's really strange. And here I am acting in his movie. And to be honest with you, is where I learned my sec the second part of my job. Hmm. With Keshish, I learned the actors. And with Arnaud, I taught to learn the meaning of telling a story and the meaning of shooting a story. What a shot means. What is the other part of my job? What was your role in this film? I was uh, I had one day or, or two days of shooting mm. and I was robbing a small uh, some kind of a convenient store you know and it was a comedy thing pretty much Oh okay it was very sarcastic in some ways and uh, this movie has like I think it's the biggest success it had and uh, it's funny because this year I finished this given this movie like in within one year in my life Yeah, it's so crazy. And I met like those two people. These two gigantic film directors. Yes. And it was very like foundational for me. Oh my goodness. So what are some of those specific things that you learned watching on the set of Arnaud? Watching on the set of Arnaud, I learned two things. Uh, first thing is what it means to make a shot. Because you know, when we are with Keshish, there is like two or three cameras running like nonstop. 
nonstop. Hmm. You know, so there is no decision made on set about how to tell a story with image. Symbolism, all these things are very secondary to him. He's like, I don't care. I just want to film the actor and I want to film them nonstop. When Arno, each shot has a meaning. Each shot is structured, organized, and each thing is so organized that before and after it has a meaning. Mm. So I learned that first. Right. The second thing I learned is if you want to be a good director, Keshish told me I have to be an actor. And I think Arno taught to me that I have to be a very good technician too. Interesting. So I start to understand that technique was a big part of this job. It's like most of the time director nowadays thinks this is not their job. They are not technicians. They are not here to know this or that. But Arno told me, no, no, it's your job. And so he put me in this path to work on the technical side of movie making. And I think this decision to follow his advice have saved me a lot of troubles and also helped me to save money. Mm. weirdly on movies you know so when I see Pour la France we have like this budget but it's very small budget for everything we have to do you know and because we know how to allocate money to the needs specifically I have so I don't have to spend things for things that I could need right or maybe I will need I will just spend money for what I need only so you see I don't have any backup or maybe or and another thing he taught to me and this is the very most important thing it has nothing to do with that is you have the right to change your mind mm. it's like People are telling us, you know, a director is a guy who knows everything all the time. It's not true because what we want to do, we cannot achieve it most of the time. Right. So we have to be flexible. And when we see something better, something more interesting, we have to seize it. We don't care about what other things, you know. All these things, like it, it happened to me to say, okay, we're going to do that. And I'm like looking at it and I'm like, it's a shitty idea. Right. It's not going to work. It's, it's not going to work. Not how I imagined it, right? Yeah. It's not working. Or sometimes I imagine something, I start to do it and it's bad. You know? Yeah. Right. <laughs> and Arnaud taught me, but you say it's bad. We don't do it. We do something else. End of the story. And this is something that has helped me a lot in my professional life because all of the sudden I start to be very independent in my mind, you know, it's like I just follow what I want to do. That's pretty impressive, right? Because he has this kind of strategy of being very technical, right? And placing an emphasis on all of that technique, understanding all of the shots and the symbolism and planning and everything. But on the other end of that, you also have a right. You have that power to be flexible, to be spontaneous, to make changes and go in a different route. I think those two things are complementary, actually. Exactly. They are not contradictory, you know, it's because we plan so much that we have the freedom to change. 100%. It's like, you know what I mean? It's like, 100%. I'm, I'm yeah, so, it's impressive. We are so organized that now if we want to add something or change something, let's just do it. Exactly. And and this thing is like where the meaning of being ready becomes fruitful. Yeah. It's like you have the ability to change and organize things differently. And I think it's uh, something you can see in Scorsese movie. Uh-huh. Yeah. A lot. Scorsese, yeah. He drew everything, but at the end of the day, he mixed uh, a lot of things that he drew with things that came into his mind when he was shooting. Yes. Another guy that is very famous for that, I think, is Spielberg. Spielberg has a very, like, there's a funny story. You can hear a, a French uh, actor talking about it. He's with him on set, and Spielberg organized this very complicated shot, and the team is working. They shot, they are, you know, they are organizing this thing. It's, it takes two hours and a half to set it up. So they are setting up the thing, and all of a the sudden, there's his GP that come and put a wide lens just to look at the set, to check if the lighting is, like, really hitting where he wants. Oh, interesting. So, it's not the shot at all. It's right. something just to, to monitor the set. It's, it's just to monitor the set. Like to audit the set in some exactly. way. Exactly. Yeah, right. 
And this is something we do sometimes. When we have like complicated lighting, we bring the camera, we put it on a tripod. We can check that right, everything to see is how it looks. Right, right, right. Before we shoot. Okay. It's something more general. It should be after I bought to be specific. You know? Okay. Right. And Spielberg look at that and say, Wow, it's much better. And people worked for three hours and it's like, No, we're gonna do that. Right. Exactly. And so it was like, Oh, but we said we're gonna do this. Yes, but this is better. Yeah. Exactly. Just this simple white shot is better than my shitty idea with my movement that goes everywhere. Yeah. And I think this is it, you know, it's what filmmaking is. Is when you are able to also accept the fact that you are just a craftsman and a craftsman is someone that say, okay, but this is a better thing to adapt myself this way or this way or this way. Even if you are ready, super ready. And you need to be super ready to adapt yourself. Exactly. Because if you are not ready, you don't know what you are doing. You are just... And you trying- can't seize that opportunity. You're not ready to seize that opportunity exactly. either. Yeah. And this is what I learned from with Arnaud. It's for that if I show you like the way the, the movie is um, structured, every shot is like very specific and you can see it most of the time. It's like everything is structured in advance. And this thing is to save me time. Right. And to help me change my mind if I want. So it happens sometimes and sometimes we keep it, but most of the time we keep it. Oh my goodness. So at this time, were you still doing this kind of side hustle with the the rap videos? How long did that last? I did that for for about a, a year and a half. They bought a very expensive camera. So the deal was, okay, I keep your camera to shoot my short story and I, and I edit that for you. So I, I kept their camera and I earned, during my days of shooting with Arno, I earned much more money in one or two days than right, with Kishi in one year. <laughs> right. So this money helped me to buy, you know, tapes because we're doing like tapes and everything. And so this movie, I finished it. I show it to Arnaud and uh, to Abdel. And after that, they helped me to finish editing. Arnaud came to my house in the ghetto. No way. Yes, at a couscous at my mom's place. Came into my bedroom and started to help me with my editing at the time. That's insane. And uh, on was, this Mac computer in exactly. your house that you, wow. And we are talking about housing projects. Yeah, the real projects. Yes, exactly. And him coming there to help me as a kid. I was 18 years old and the movie had been screened in a festival and uh, one of the biggest TV network, Arte. Okay, yeah. They bought it. Oh, wow. And this is the beginning. That's your career. Of my career as a director. Oh, no way. What was this one? Uh, How short was it? 32 minutes. Okay. And the title was Not Effect Without Cause. No Effect Without Cause. And it was uh, just this like story about this kid coming from his country, from North Africa, immigrating illegally and trying to find some kind of paradise here in France. And uh, what he found is more of the hell of the ghetto with his cousin being, you know, doing some kind of, of like stealing cars, doing shit, you know. Mm. And he goes like, find himself into his dream being destroyed of a better future in France. It was the first story. And I think I was very influenced by one thing is in school at this time, I remember have been very, I have been hit by the reading of Candide by Voltaire. Yes, Voltaire, of course. And not effect without cause is, is a sentence from Candide, you know. Mm. And, and, and I took it from there. Mm-hmm. And, and and I remember how much impact this book had on me at the time. And I think it's why we, we start to think about dreams being destroyed is pretty much what Voltaire is about. You know? Yeah, 100%. Do you find yourself influenced or inspired a lot by other arts like literature or... Of course. I mean, we cannot do movies if you are not interested in other forms of art. I mean, let's be let's be humble a bit. We are just 
one way to express something, but other people express things in other ways sometimes that are much more efficient than us in movies. And so therefore, you know, there's two things that I really look at usually when I think about movie making. I love opera, really, more than theater. I go watch a lot of plays, but for me it's a bit of a torture, but, but you know, I need to do it because mm. there's good ideas. These people have one set, they are limited by space and they are limited by, by the fact that they are inside, they are limited by location, they have so many limitations. They found some very good ideas of blocking in theater mm. so i go see that and that's why i go to theater but theater is more is more painful than opera for me to watch <laughs> i love opera because it's the most complete form of art you have music you have acting you have painting you have everything in it because mm. they are doing so much mixing all the art together mm -hmm. so i try to go see opera and there is another thing that really hit me a lot is uh, of course literature because at the end of the day we have to be able to steal some good ideas from some books. And exactly. and, and, and th th this is not, when I say that, it's because I want to put things in perspective that, uh, you know, we are inspired by what we read, you know. It's mm -hmm. impossible to write a good story if you don't have some kind of... Uh, inspiration. Inspiration and foundation in literature. 100%. You see, it's like uh, when sometimes... Uh, I talk with my my friends uh, that I write with. I write with different people. And all depends on the story. I choose a different co-writer. But I never write alone. But we always find ourselves reading a lot of books on the side mm. to try to find solution to our own problems. Mm. It's like if we try to make a character, you know, a character has to be some kind of unique, but nuanced and complex. It's mm. something that is very important to me. I had this black and white thing. Yes. So we have to find inspiration into like books about situation to depict those characters. How can you show me an action or something he says or he does that will tell a story about him that will be understandable for everyone and that will be helping us to get into where this person stands? What are their moral values? What they are thinking about? I'll give you an example. When I do For My Country, there is the scene where we have the character burning a scooter into Westland. Yes. And uh, I choose... Ismail. Ismail, yes. And I choose to not show what happened before. I just choose to put it there as something that tells us that, okay, this guy is doing something that he shouldn't do. Right. Something may be illegal, but I never say what it is. There's no other context other than that. Yes, because... It carries over a little bit into the next scene with the scar on, yes. on the eyebrow and the mother sees it and you can get a hint because she's like, you're up to no good again. She right? knows it. Yeah. She knows it, but everyone is uh, comfortable with this. You know, is we blame him to be what he is, but everyone is happy to have him do what he does. Mm. It's the complexity of this family. And I think she rejects his gift. Right, at Christmas. At Christmas, but at the same time, she also accepted the fact that he took care of everyone. She is not dismissing him. She's just judging him. Exactly. Because it's her failure as a mother mm -hmm. that is interesting at this moment. Right. She, she doesn't failed. have the money. She doesn't have the money. She doesn't have the ability. And she feels ashamed that her son has to do that for her. Right. And I think it's what is important. And this thing is, you know, when you take a book from someone like Laclos, mm -hmm. who wrote Les Liaisons Dangereuses, I don't know how to say it in English. You know the... Uh, yeah, I don't know the English. The, the yeah. English title. Mm -hmm. uh, and you see, I feel like he was just giving us a glimpse about this weird family and their weird like, love story and the evil mom. By small glimpse, we don't know exactly until we discover things about her or not. We don't mm -hmm. have the whole understanding between them. Exactly. And I think it's what... 
it's this kind of things that we try to recreate. It's like finding our own way by taking someone's idea mm. and translating it into our language of cinema, but also into the style of the movie. I love that. I mean, I think that's one of the most predominant themes. I mean, there's a lot of themes that you touch upon, obviously, in the film, but family is one of them, you know, and those very complicated dynamics, which I think are really amazing, you know, sitting around the dinner table, that kind of conversation and all of these decisions related to how to deal with this military institution as well. Different family members having different opinions about how to handle it, right? You can just feel this tension throughout, but it's it's a very subtle, nuanced thing. And it's not so black and white, as you say. I think because, let's be honest, when you are Arabic or from Arabic heritage, and uh, now we evolve into Western countries or... Because in Asia, the, the, there's pretty much no immigration. We're going we're gonna to touch upon that a bit later. Mm. But you see, because there's a colonial story in Europe, mostly, and there is a slavery story in the U.S., Nowadays, you know, with time, we try to make those minority have a space into the media. So you have us like nowadays being able to make movies to tell stories. But even if we are able to make stories and movies, we are now stuck into stereotypes. Mm-hmm. So we went from invisibilization to stereotypes. So nowadays is the mission for us is to break those stereotypes. Before the people before us, their mission was to have a small space to exist. So to me, doing for my country, the way I did it, it's a family story that touched upon the French army, mm-hmm. the French institutions, but that is focused on character. Exactly. And doing that helped me to break those stereotypes. Yeah. You know, because all of a sudden you see something about this family that you never saw before. They are doing Christmas. For some people, it's a shock. For me, it's normal. Exactly. I grew up like that all my life. Right. You see? And the mother. People think an Arabic woman is a weak, submissive woman that is wearing a hijab, that doesn't speak French or doesn't speak English in some case. Mm. Take that into another Mm -hmm. setting, you know, another country. But this is not true. In my country, this is a strong woman with a strong will. And like I said, sometimes she has balls, you know, she fights for what she believes is is good. And at the same time, she has the complexity of a very cruel woman with her kid. Yes. It's very Bergmanian in some way. To have this woman saying some horrible stuff in the nicest way possible. Right, 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 right. You know, it's what makes her super cruel to a degree where we understand that she's human because what she went through as a character, we could have had a character that we pity, but you never pity her. She lost her son, but you never pity her. So she stays dignified. And she's dignified because she has a certain cruelty to her. And this is the thing that we are looking for, is to break those cliches and to break them emotionally and intellectually. So even the way people feel about this character, I don't want them to have pity for them. I don't want them to pity the Saidi family. I want them to be intrigued. I want them to be wondering about their own family yeah. when they look at them. Now, I think you set the tone really well with the mother, especially in the very beginning, where she's handling everything with a very cool sense of detachment, right? Emotion detachment even though her son her beloved son this the star of the family has just died in this horrific tragedy right but she's really holding that in until she gets to the morgue right it's a very kind of slow build up to that and then that morgue scene i won't give too much away but when she releases that emotion it's it's so intense and the actress herself is so amazing i was like oh dude you could just feel it she's a great actress and i mean it's a one shot too in the morgue it's a one shot too of her it's a wide shot and again it's like you said the right word is distance Mm -hmm. it's because we are at a certain distance from her 
when we shoot her too that this emotion comes to us because there's no way we impose that on the audience. We are not giving you a close-up of her crying. Exactly, tears running down her. You don't need that. What you need is something more horrible. You need something cold because death is something cold. 100%. There is no warmth into it. And I think the colder we get in the movie, the better emotionally we are. And it's what we try to achieve. But here is the contradictions you live in. Is since there is like those different timelines, there is a certain subjectivity to the story. You are in, you know, the subjectivity of Ismail's story. Mm. So we have to always find the balance between how cold we can be, which means objective, right, and how we deal with the character that are involved by the story inside of it, right, their own mini subjectivity, right, exactly, right. And this is the struggle we have encountered a lot, and this is why style-wise, I think the movie really went to push into the classic side of cinema like we wanted to have a, a classical style for the story because it will make those timeline marry well and at the same time we have by small glimpse did things that were very subjective it's like Taiwan part is more free the Algerian part is more cold the French part is much more clinical right emotionally speaking mm -hmm. you don't see them like going through a lot of emotional things it's all those things that we try to build up together and i think you can really feel it and it's very interesting too because i was wondering about the narrative arc did you envision it in this kind of non-linear way because you know it kind of jumps back and forth between these three different kind of scenes right with each of their own very particular setting and ambiance I was wondering if that's something you set out in the beginning or is that something that kind of changed with time as well? No, we, we said that during the writing. All this decision has been made when we were writing because, you see, if the story was the story of an Arabic family in France fighting against the army, it would be cliche. Like, it's something we saw on the news. Nobody needs me to tell this story. Right, yeah. That's the predominant story. This is the easy story. It's yeah. someone that didn't leave it that will tell it. Mm -hmm. It's like when people think, oh, but this is not a movie about the investigation and this is not a movie about why this family is trying to find what happened. No, because this thing, uh, the journalist already did it. The news already covered it. This is a movie that will be, like, if it has to be made, it will be made by somebody else, you know. Someone that doesn't have any insight to put on screen. And this movie is a TV thing. It's a TV drama I have seen a hundred times. Right. You know, it's law and order, something like that, you know, a mm. TV show. So the first thing it was from the beginning, we were like, we're going to go crazy. We're going to marry those things. And that's why I felt very fast. I felt limited into my directing like scope. Because if my style was too obvious, the movie will be very vulgar. Mm, yeah, it has that risk. Exactly. Yeah. It's like we can become vulgar and we can become inelegant. Right. And this thing was the first thing that we had in mind when we were writing. So right. we're going to marry things together, but we have to be elegant. And to be elegant, we have to be subtle. So I think if we try to marry things in a too obvious way, by doing too much effect, by imposing a style that is uh, a bit too obvious, we will have cut people from the emotion of the story mm. and from the characters. And it will have been very vulgar. That's the contradiction we were having. It's like how to have a free-minded movie without being vulgar. Yeah. <laughs> exactly it's difficult it is okay so all of the french scenes were also filmed in the banlieue yes yeah. in saint-ouen because it's where i come from okay 
so 93 uh, and we shot in yep. Saint-Ouen and it was important for me to shoot uh, really by the place we were living at the time. Speaking of that, I, I guess we won't go too deep into this for this episode, but uh, the other film, the orchestra class, because I think La Melodie, I think it ties into a lot of what you were saying about inspiration, right? About growing up in the bandu, about your inspirations with music and that kind of setting as well. I think there's a lot of parallels there. I think there's many parallels because La Melodie is more of a... Um, it was like a hybrid movie, kind of an indie studio movie. It was with the big movie star, with Cadmerad, who is mm-hmm. a huge, huge movie star. Yep. But they have something in common. So first of all, we are talking about a social prison break. Yeah. It's how people get out of this social prison they are born in or they are growing up in. I mean, it reminds me of your story of your teacher who exactly. stayed after class. When you were telling me this story right now, you know, I just watched La Melody last night, the orchestra class last night, and I was just imagining that film. I was like, oh, wow, I see. And La Melody has another thing. Like there's this social prison break, but there's also another thing is about how people can be master of their own destiny. And I think for me, this is a very important topic because uh, social determinism is something that scares me. I think people are able to fight for what they want and the way they want it. And La Melody tells the story as much as Paula France does it. Mm-hmm. Another thing is in La Melody for me is uh, in a way I was giving back to Leskiv. So you see, I want to bring those kids from the ghetto. They never acted in their life. They are much younger than us when we did Leskiv, by the way. Oh, really? Okay. We were like 16, around 16. Those kids are around 12 years old in La Melody. Yeah, that main kid. Arnold. Arnold. Yeah, he was amazing. They're around 12, 12, 13 you know, years old. So they're like a bit younger than us. And I was like, okay, I'm going to take these kids and I'm going to give them a shot in cinema. And I'm going to make them do something that everybody says is impossible, which is to learn violin within like a few months. Mm. So just to put that into perspective. That's a very important part of it. It's inspired by a true story, by a true program named Demos that is taking place in France with the French Philharmonic for the past, like now, 15 years. And uh, those kids really, within one year, they learn to play an instrument and play a concert at the end of the year. Wow, at a real Philharmonic. At the real Philharmonic. It happened each year for the past 15 years. So it's not like the story is not some kind of fantasy or something impossible. It's really happening. And where I can feel like people sometimes are a bit disconnected or swamped by the general like news or atmosphere is we always think this is impossible when it comes to this kind of things, even though they are taking place in real life. Mm-hmm. So I felt like telling this story was important. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, I can feel it. Pulling back from your past and kind of looking forward to the future as well with Port La France. Yes, because I think La Melody was, uh, I said it last time to another journalist I was talking with, it was me paying back my debt in some ways, morally speaking. It's like those kids are continuing to act. Some of them have like gigs and they are moving on because there is like, I think three, four kids that are extremely, extremely good. There's Arnold, there's Yusuf. Mm. The kid that cry, who cries on the, the right, rooftop. right, right, yes, yes, yes. And there's the the girl that uh, teach uh, Arnold how to play violin. Okay. Yeah. Once. Yeah. Those three kids, they had something extremely special, and I see them nowadays. They still act. They still like playing movies. They are growing and they start to make a career. And they are like what now? They are 18, 19 years old. So what I mean is like in some kind of way, I was very happy to make them start and. Uh, Every time I finish a movie, I'm like, okay, no kids this time. Here here I am again. You know, it's like I bring them again. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. So now we are here in Taiwan and that is also, you know, the other 
other third of this film, a very, very important one. So your brother, as I mentioned in the intro, he studied for a couple years here at the top university, NTU, National Taiwan University, and you actually visited him and a lot of the most beautiful scenes, and as you said, a lot of the free scenes are here in Taiwan. Yes, because I think uh, you are free to revisit your memory, that is often the most recent one. Uh, you see, if you think about one year ago, some very important thing, we are pretty free-minded about it. But when you think about your childhood trauma, they stay very firmly right. into your mind. Mm. And if you think about them today or tomorrow, they would not move that much. Right, right. But you see, and, and so Taiwan was a place where I could like create also something very different from what we expect. I'm not making the Aisa character a nice guy that we regret. Mm. He was strong-minded. He was cruel at times. Yeah, very he cold and very distant, for sure. The first thing he says to his brother when he lands in Taipei is like, what the fuck are you doing here? Yeah, why are you here? And you say, to, to see you. <laughs> and, and I think it tells you a story is like they are in conflict. They go through a lot of ups and downs. And this is what brotherhood is. Yeah. This is how it looks like. When every time like people say, they fight each other, you were fighting with your brother. I mean, come on. If you have brothers and sisters, the first person you punch in your life is supposed <laughs> to be your brother or sister. Exactly. It's just how nature is made. Yes. We, have to, we have to get in with them, you know? Right. And so I think it's why I try to recreate his life in many ways, is treating, is fighting, loving, and actually let's say eating, loving, and fighting each mm, other. You know? Yeah. So I try to have them eat. I try to have them fight. True. I try to have them a moment or another show love they have, not just for each other, but as a whole. That's actually interesting that you put it that way. Because yeah, right. A lot of the most memorable scenes are them just eating at a local quintessentially Taiwanese street food and just kind of over and over. And that really sets the scene. Yes, I think because you see, for me, I try to just show what I see of Taipei. There's three things that sometimes pop up when I showed the movie to the Taiwanese audience uh, last year during the Golden Horse. Mm. The first thing that really came out is why do you show homeless? Oh, right. I Okay, yes. We're going to go into there. It's very interesting. It's very weird for me okay. as a question, but it's very interesting. Mm. And the second question is like why they are always eating at this place. They eat twice there. Right. Because when you are in Taiwan, I think food is an important part of life. Mm -hmm. Very important. And uh, you can eat so many different things. And I think the less cliche we are, like the more truthful we are, the more simple we are, the better it is emotionally. So that's why I let them eat there because most of us have like a soy milk place down our home. Right. They yeah. are everywhere. Exactly. When you are like starving in the middle of the night, they are open. When you want to eat in the morning, they are open. Mm -hmm. When you are drunk, they are open. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Especially that's when right. you are drunk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and you see, so they are like, they are part of life. And the second thing is we see this place twice and this place has a very interesting thing for me. Is like the first time he's alone and the second time, even if he's brought is here is still alone right there's a certain loneliness that come with this and then the homeless because there's actually two right there's one when there's probably three actually now now that i'm thinking yes there's one as they are coming home and right on their street right where isa is living just outside there's another one when Ismail is looking down from the balcony. He sees some guy kind of fighting after Ismail gets into a fight in the club. Uh, and then there's another one around New Year's Eve when Ismail is walking through the street alone and meets a homeless person and gives him his jacket. So, yeah, why? And that's interesting that that was a question that kept coming up at Golden Horse. I think it's because uh, Taiwanese uh, audience is always worried about how we portray their country. Exactly. 
And I think there's an issue is they are not critical enough of their system of the place they are living in. I think there is a lack of criticism in modern, contemporary, sorry, Taiwanese uh, cinema. Mm. I'm being harsh, but I'm being truthful to what I feel and think. Right. If you see Edward Yang's movie, they are extremely critical. Exactly. If you see mm. Xiao Xian movies, especially the childhood movies, mm. extremely critical. So good too. A Time to Live, A Time to Die. <laughs> so good. A Boys from Feng Kui. Yeah. You know, those movies are critical yeah, of, of, of so the society. Mm -hmm. And I think cinema is a way also to criticize our society. So I want to put things in perspective. The way I criticize the French society is so big mm. for my country. Right. Exactly. It's the highest. So when I show homeless here, I don't feel like I'm being like dirtying anything or anyone. Mm. I think I'm just giving a space to the people we don't look at to the people we ignore because there is homeless in Taiwan yeah I see them mm -hmm. you know if I go around Ximending, I see them yep. if I go around Taipei Main Station I see them exactly sometimes I see them around Guting mm -hmm. they, are, they exist they are part of, of the society and uh, for me showing those people that we never show is also part of the value that I defend mm. so in some kind of way I show this character because I saw this kind of people in the city so it was important for me to put like this character there this is the first reason The second reason is because it represents a threat for Ismail. It represents a threat of his potential future if it doesn't change his path. It's like, where are you getting at? And I think That's when you look at this guy represents something that can happen to him. And this guy has something in common with him. Is when this guy is fighting the rain, he's fighting an element. He's fighting water. He's fighting something that he cannot win against. Right. Natural elements. And death is a natural element mm -hmm. that Ismail is trying to fight, actually by keeping his brother, you know, by his side, by refusing to bury him, by like, you know, asking for, when he asks for those dignified funeral, in some kind of ways, he's keeping his brother with him too. Right. This thing is happening at the same time. So there is like the Antigone, that is this Greek tragedy about this girl that wants to bury her, her brother. Mm. That is a tragedy that the movie is putting itself in. Right. You know? So when you speak about the relationship of literature and cinema, I think Antigone is a great link mm -hmm. for us, mm. for the French part. The French part was really inspired by it. And uh, the Algerian part was inspired by the Genesis, the story of Ebel and Cain. Yes, exactly. I mean, instead of breaking the, the rock on his brother's head. Right, through the glass to his father. He does it to his father. Yes. Because he decided to be his brother's keeper. Right. That's interesting. So for us, it was, there is like, this is a link to literature here. And finally, there is this adventurous story happening in Taiwan between the two brothers. And for me, in this story, we need it to also be able to create symbolism and the homeless fighting with the rain against something he cannot win against and mm. Ismail fighting against death, something he cannot win against. Mm. Continue to get them close to each other. And it's for that that the final thing with this homeless is him giving his jacket. It's a very Christian act. Jesus gives his jacket yeah. to a homeless. And at this moment, it pretty much becomes Jesus by doing that. It becomes like, this is one of this, the first action of Jesus is to give his, his jacket to a homeless. And it changed to this almost like prophet, mythologic character, religious character. And I think for me, it's the moment where Ismail abandoned a part of him to be reborn right. to this new guy that he becomes. So you see, we try to get some symbolism with this homeless too. And for us to bring him all the way there through the story was part of how we can tell Ismail changes through time. Wow.
the scene before that Jesus coat scene, uh, so to speak, was also a very beautiful scene, which was on top of the rooftop. And you were able to be here for New Year's Eve and actually capture that from the rooftop. Yes, I think this scene was important for us because it was for me how to create a contrast into the, the story. So you just have Ismail talking to his brother about their difficult past and telling him the truth, everything that has been hidden to him, all the lies his family made up. Mm -hmm. And here you are in this very joyful moment. And the scene doesn't feel that joyful. It feels more poetic, but it's not joyful. It's here the contrast is hitting us. And I think when you have a contrast of this size, it creates the drama that we are looking for. So mm -hmm. you have the loneliness of this brother, the other one that has his friend, his girlfriend is not alone, he's surrounded, and he's lying to them. He's pretending that he's fine. The two brother knows what's going on. And this scene was very important for us. And we have been extremely lucky to have this very foggy night. Mm, I know. That ambiance was perfect. Exactly. Yeah. We were very afraid of two things. Either it was too clean and it looks like a like a tourist movie. Right. Or too or, rainy. Or too rainy and yeah. we were dead, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Water. And what happened is something different. We felt like the, the city was setting itself on fire. And that tells us something about what's happening inside them. Yeah, it's perfect. And it's not only that, it's literally the camera, the bokeh. Ah, uh, we can talk about that. Yeah, that was impressive. I was like, oh, look at that bokeh. That's that's a serious... Because the Taiwan part, actually, you know, we were talking about technical stuff. Yeah, exactly. So so you see, uh, I work with Panavision since the beginning. Very early on, when we started this movie, I went to see them and I said, okay, guys, okay, Algeria and Taiwan will be shot in anamorphic lenses and we're going to shoot France with the uh, 70 millimeter spherical lenses. So the front part is very clean, but soft. So we had to have this special lens that came from LA. They are pretty new for the French part. We call them Panaspeed and they are soft, but very precise and clean lenses mm. and we shot the Algerian part with not Panavision anamorphic lenses but with Ox anamorphic lenses I changed that like last minute those lenses were vintage lenses they are uncoated and uh, we took them to Morocco because they have this white like foggy part in them that was very interesting for us because they are very diffused in light mm -hmm. so you have a low contrast mm. image with these lenses in Algeria yeah it's more nostalgic of a exactly. feeling exactly yeah and this is a subtle way to do it, you know. And the Taiwan part has been shot with the Panavision anamorphic lens a B series. There are two sets in the world and they are like very old lenses. So we brought them from LA and uh, we had a problem with one lens. To supplant it, this lens, we, we choose an older lens, a very, very old lens, a 15 millimeter that came from Atlanta. I remember because it was a mess to get it in Taiwan with the yeah, COVID. Yeah, I'm sure. Oh, wow. And so this lens is very special. And this is this lens that we use. We call that a high-speed anamorphic lens. It's a 1.1 opening. It's really crazy. What oh, you see in the 1. image 1. is... okay. It's very specific. And I think this lens was really what we needed for this scene, you know, this firework. Because it creates a feeling, very unique feeling. It definitely does. That bokeh is so interesting. The shape of the bokeh and just the, the colors, the diffusion, it's it's impressive. We kept the same lens from the scene on the balcony between Karim Leclou and, and, and Vivian Song and on the roof. So we tried to create already the beginning of this atmosphere to be very natural in the story. And so we used the same lens for those two scenes. I see. So it's the way we were like thinking is like, okay, let's put them in this tunnel visually. That is a very small detail that you, some people see, some people don't, but they will feel it. Yeah. And after that, we went back to the B-series anamorphic lens when we went with the home 
homeless. So something a bit cleaner. But this is a very, very old lens. I don't know. Those lenses are crazy. Panavision, they are really amazing because they have created this beautiful hardware. Ah, wow. I'm glad you mentioned uh, Vivian, Vivian Sung. So you were mentioning about Aisa and, you know, his character and being kind of cold and detached. And I think Vivian does a really great job of being Amazing right actress. by the side and kind of highlighting that character in a lot of ways. Yes, because also I think we talk about stereotype. We are so far from the cliche of Asian girls. And I'm sorry to say that, but... This is exactly how I see them. I see a lot of Taiwanese women being very strong that have a very good like idea of what they want and don't. And they most of the time are more direct than many other, like than men most of the time. So, yeah, definitely. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, So I definitely. remember the, the first time I arrived in Taiwan, my brother's girlfriend pretty much like talked to me the, the same way. That's same sentence that I'm putting in the movie. So it's my first encounter with the Taiwanese girl was her scolding me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the hot pot scene was perfect. Yes. Where, yeah, your brother goes off to the bathroom and then you guys have that amazing repartee. It was quite amazing. And then switch it up as he comes in. It's what happened. Really? Pretty much what happened. I mean, you see, this is how, how it's interesting. It was not happening in a hot pot because it was happening in a car. But I was like, of course, because after we had dinner together, so I mixed all those scenes together to make them at once, to make it more efficient cinema-wise. But it's exactly what happened. And I think this girl and I now are very, very friends because we have this, we lived something together. And uh, I think uh, in some kind of way, for me, Vivian has this kind of strong mind and very clear personality that was very useful to the character and to go even further Vivian came to Paris and worked with us and it was amazing I think the French actors and her really had like this this good chemistry and yes good chemistry and I think she's part of this, this family because for mm. me when I when I build like a cast in a movie so it's very it's something that I learned from Abdel you see mm. so I forced them to stuck together for about two weeks or two weeks you know I organize rehearsal and so people will tell me but what kind of rehearsal but I tell them you come here at nine and I don't talk to them until 11. <laughs> That's what Abdel did too. In some kind of ways. Right. In some kind of ways, they start to communicate with each other. Right. You just put them in the same space. They let are them together. Figure it out. Yes, it's you know, it's a big space. People start to talk to one another. They start to share things. They start to talk about the scene. After I go rehearse with them, we read the scene together for like let's say from eleven to one PM. We have lunch. After I let them work with the one of the girls I work with, I tell them, you know, this is bad. This scene is a catastrophe. What you are doing that here is shitty. Mm -hmm. And the girl is like looking at that and she make them work on that. And I see them after in the afternoon to see how they corrected it, how this thing is, is like evolving. And sometimes what I say is like, we are more shrinks than directors. Like we start to shrink the story out with them. Their issues <laughs> as actors, why this thing cannot be act a certain way. And all these things can start to show up, you know. Yeah, this therapy over time to it's amazing. get it better. It's amazing because all of a sudden we start to open up. Yeah. And strangely, we never talk pretty much. We never talk about ourselves. We talk about this, like the character, the mm. story. I never talk to them about my brother or me. Mm. I talk to them about the character that's written. I give them their space. Right. Just to infiltrate into that yes. very deeply. And to talk about their personal issues with this character, the way to act it. It's like their space. This is their character, not mine. Right. And so we do that for two weeks. And uh, Vivian spent some time with us uh, during these two weeks. She came like once or twice. And uh, she starts to like have this chemistry starting with those, those actors because they are all the same kind. It's like when I cast them, I try to find people who love acting, who love cinema for real. 
Mm. Uh, um, and uh, you, usually the first thing we do is uh, we set up rules and one of those rules is no ego. I have no ego. Like we are reading a scene and I can tell them my scene is shittily written. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> because it happens. Right. <laughs> you know, it sounds like a good idea. It looks like a good idea, but it's but an awful shit, idea. <laughs> voilà. Once you yeah, act it, it's exactly. like, okay, guys, this is not your fault, it's mine. Right. So I'm going to go rewrite it. So we get into this truthful thing, relationship. And this is why at the end of the, the story, at the end of the shooting, at the end of everything we do, there is always this big moment where we are sad to leave each other. I can imagine. Yeah. Because it's very truthful and we can like, you know, it's not easy. I tell them we are going to war. So it's what we do. Do war against ourselves. We got to try to get the best of us each day. Each day is difficult. Each day I push to the maximum of what I can push. And at the end, we are just happy that we did our best. So what did Taiwan or Taipei mean to your brother? My brother was in Sciences Po Paris, mm. which is, uh, let's put it straight, the political and social school of France. Uh, yep. Most of uh, French president and, exactly. and all the... Extremely prestigious. Prestigious school. And he came to Taida here because he wanted to learn traditional Chinese for his master in international security. And uh, therefore, he came here because to him, the question of China will be the biggest question of the future. 100%. And, and for him, as um, a guy that was planning to go to Saint-Cyr to become a military officer. This the question. first Arab general, as the f- says major, the general, major general. Major general, yes. There is some Arab general, but we never give them the... The major general position. <laughs> the major general position. So, so, so for him, it was, <sighs> uh, it was like, okay, this is the future is there. So I want you to understand. So Asia was his focus. China was his focus. Taiwan was his focus. And that's why here we are like in Taiwan. In the, we were in Taiwan in 2010, you know, that's why. And is it true that it was during this time in Taiwan that you and your brother kind of developed a deeper bond? Of course. Yeah. Because uh, we, you know, in 2010, I am 25, he's 22. And uh, for the first time, we are getting out of teenagehood. We are finally getting adults, you know. Mm -hmm. And those topics, the way we raise them, the way we talk about things was for the first time efficient, healthy, direct, and mature enough to be able to understand each other. Yeah. So I think we became brother really at this moment. During this time mm-hmm. in Taiwan. In Taiwan, yes. Yeah, it's crazy. And I heard also that after his death, you decided to come back to Taiwan. I came back in 2015 because I shot a, sh- a short story named Reminiscence. And Reminiscence was the inspirational, the base of for my country. Okay. So when I finished that, I was with my producer. He was like, it's a shame that we don't make it into a feature film. But he was like, you have to go deeper. You have to go ahead and make a real story out of it and so we took reminiscence and we start to do started to develop it into a feature link film exactly and in the meantime i have shot uh, la melody so oh i see because okay. the melody is shot in 2016 wow so how many years did it take to develop this pour la france i think it took us five years six years six years wow it's longer mm. And then that final scene, that final scene where you guys are leaving Taiwan and that is the end of the film. You jump into a taxi, also an amazing scene because I think it's a very quintessentially Taiwanese scene that I think only people who really understand Taiwan will capture that aspect of taking a taxi because it's not every taxi, as I'm sure you know, but that special taxi. And of course, you sing a song. 
song. And that song, I alluded to it in the intro, Porsu, mm-hmm. uh, which also I think has a very deep meaning. The song itself, maybe also kind of a homage to your past of, you know, working a lot with like rap videos and these kind of things as well from, from the hood, from the banlieue of, of Paris. There's a link also with the opening scene of the movie. Uh, the movie starts with um, Commando d'Afrique, which is a song to the African soldier who died. Oh, the to lions free, of Africa, right. To, okay. to, free, to free France from the Nazis. So these people came and start to do war against the Nazi Germany to free France from Nazis in the 40s. Mm. And uh, he started by singing that in Saint-Cyr. And he ended by singing Pour ce, by Mafia Canfri. I need caffeine. Mm. <laughs> I'm an addict. Uh, exactly. Um, and he starts by Commando d'Afrique and he ends by Mafia Afrique pour ce. So those two songs help us to have a circular movement in the movie by remembering the colonial past of France, the African that fought for it. And now pour ce is the song by their descendant mm. who are living in French neighborhood, you know, and what they became, what is their story, you know. And mm. this is a link between different generation of African, French African people. And this is the complex identity of Aïssa too. Right. He is the one that wants to defend the value of democracy and republic and the value of freedom of France. But at the same time, is this guy from the that comes from this background and that comes with these beliefs too. And originally from that exactly. North Africa. So that's why those two songs are actually communicating with one another. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. I also remember when we were talking before that, and I mentioned it in the very beginning, but you've also had uh, experiences living in different parts of the world, including San Francisco. But I think interestingly, maybe as a connection to what we're talking about here with Taiwan is you also spent time in China. Yes, I spent time in China and I spent time in, in Shenzhen and I was traveling often between Shenzhen and Hong Kong. And it was during the protest in Hong Kong. So I was there seeing... Oh. Those crazy protests in Hong Kong, you know. And uh, how can I say it? To be simple, I think, you know, for me as a, just an observer, when I go, you know, when I go to San Francisco, when I go to Asia, be it like Shenzhen, Hong Kong, Taipei, this is very interesting to compare that to where I come from and what I have known, you know, be it Algeria or France as my roots, you know. Mm. And uh, I just feel like all those places are so different from one another. Sometimes I have a big issue when it comes to the way Asia is overall depicted as a united place. Right. With a it's united all the same thing, Asia. This is bullshit. Right, exactly. I mean, even in China, it's not the same thing. If I travel in China, if I'm in Shenzhen or I go to Shanghai, I go to Beijing, I go to, to, yeah, to, to Chengdu, Chengdu yeah. or even if you go to Xi'an. Or, Xi'an, yes. It, you know, it feels like I'm traveling in Europe to me. It's like I go they from are a place totally to another. different. Exactly. There are different places, <laughs> yeah, different, yeah. different places. Yeah. Right. Different food, different language, different everything. Exactly. Yeah. Different weather. Different habits too, different people, different culture. Yeah. And it's what I discovered about China is there is like maybe this big national obsession about unity, but China is so diverse, you know? And I saw this diversity playing really at full in front of my eyes during the moment I was there before COVID. And When did you go? I spent time there from 2017 to 2000. 19. Okay. Like right. January 2019. Oh, I think wow. the last time I went there, it was around, uh, sorry, December 2019. I went there the last time was November 2019. Okay. Right before COVID. 
Yes, and after I came to Taipei, and uh, for me, you know, whatever I have experienced there is that, first of all, it's very diverse. And the other thing I experienced is we are misunderstanding China for the past 20, 30 years, and that I have no doubt about it. And uh, when you experience it inside, it's very different from what you can see from outside. Exactly. Yeah, we were there. Actually, we overlapped in our time there. We were actually there at the same time. You were there during the kind of 70th anniversary of the the CCP. I was there as well in Beijing, where it was really crazy. I mean, it was, you know, right in the capital, but you also saw things in, in Shenzhen and felt that feeling, right? Oh, yes, it was crazy. <laughs> the only thing I can say is that it was really crazy. And and I think uh, we have to come to an understanding with, with ourselves as European, as, as Americans, as Asian people of uh, how things are going there, mm. because they will have a, a big impact on us no matter where we are living 100% it's important to understand and to really understand right rather than as you are saying throughout this whole episode is is these simple cliches these simple stereotypes right yes, it's yes, about yes. understanding these nuances there's a lot of nuances playing at percent. and I think once you get them you will be able to adapt yourself better to the changing world we are in yeah because let's be truthful to each other right now we are living in a globalized world and I hear that people are like the globalization is going back it's not the case I think globalization we just move differently. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, factory are being built by hundreds each month in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. They are built by hundreds in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. And uh, things are changing. But this is what it is. In, I mean, we are living in a new globalized world. There is a war in Ukraine. So we like it or not. I think we are starting to feel a new Cold War and we have to accept that we are in it. And I heard someone saying that last time I was listening to the CSIS podcast. Mm. And someone was saying, oh, I'm totally for Cold War. And I think I'm totally for Cold War because this is not a hot war. Mm. You know what I mean? It's like... Uh, <laughs> uh, I see, yeah. You know what I mean? It's like if we are living in a moment where things start to be like a bit dangerous and everywhere around the world and now in, in Ukraine we are in a hot war it's 2,000 kilometers from Paris let's just put that into perspective it's right. very close by so maybe to accept the fact that there is like tension between different like ideology right now nowadays accept it and live with it and find a way to live with it is maybe the best course of action for all of us instead of being in denial of it or pretending it's uh, it's not happening we are seeing it it's like the war in Ukraine is, is here and so some people say Ukraine, Taiwan, they put that into a mirror. For me, those two things are very different. They are extremely different. I think uh, to put it straight, the war in Ukraine started in 2014, not in February last year. It started by Crimea being taken. Mm-hmm. being seized. So what I mean, you are in a process of war by Russia that started a long time ago. And before you had Georgia, you had Chechnya. Yep. So what I mean by that, those things are already in progress. And I think if I start to dig into this topic, it's not because I'm diverging from the movie. Actually, I am talking about the movie. I'm talking about the fact that Isa or my brother, when they choose to become soldiers, when they choose to become officers or friends, it's not because they are agreeing with the way France is dealing with it it's like minorities or it's dealing with Africa or mm. some, some Arab kind of minorities yep. or, or Arab minorities mm-hmm. or, or even with the countries in Africa, yep. those old colonies or whatever. Yes. No, no. It's not that. It's just that at the end of the day, they were believing, they are believing, or my brother was believing into defending this idea of democracy and freedom we have in France. Right. And uh, today it's just about maintaining this freedom we have and uh, living in peace is really why those people are needed. 
mm. people like Aysar needed because they are the people that are defending the gate of our freedom and our lifestyle pretty mm. much. Oh man. Yeah, no, I think you do really great honor to your brother and you know, not only through everything you're saying now, but through this beautiful film as well, for La France. It's, it's why also I didn't want to dirty the French army. Mm. I wanted to criticize it. Right. It's very different. Exactly. Criticizing things is one of the most important duty we have as citizens. Yes. And I think it's very, maybe here in Taiwan, sometimes criticizing is taken as a very negative thing. But for me, it's the most positive thing ever. Exactly. Criticizing is a way to make things better. To want, exactly. Exactly. It's a way to, That's it's a very way. important to understand. Yes, it's a way to progress. And, and when I have a debate with my friends, when they, we disagree, I think it's beautiful because I'm learning something from them. I'm seeing things differently. It makes me think, it makes me change my mind. It makes me try to evolve. And, you know, one of the most difficult parts of existence, I think, and I was talking to about it with Olivier Pouriol, the writer, of the co-writer with who I, I have written. Okay, Paul Afros, yes. And we were thinking that we need to maintain our brain open to be convinced. We need to keep our mind flexible to be able to change course and find always the best way to deal with things or to understand things or to evolve. And I think it's what critics are made for. Exactly. It's essential. Even like in cinema, like last time, uh, you know, I remember Beat on Paul France or La Mélodie, but La Mélodie have a very, very vivid memory. It's, we are in Venice and uh, this is the day after the screening and of course all the press start to drop. And there's this article that is a, a bit, uh, you know, it's what we call mixed positive. Mixed positive. So, you know, you have negative, you have positive, you have mixed negative, mixed positive. Okay. okay. So, so the PR <laughs> send you those things and they are classified. I and, see. <laughs> and I'm like having this thing and this thing is, I'm reading it and uh, I totally agree with everything that is said about the movie, about everything that this person is saying is not good enough or not up or not done well. And I agree with it. And I'm like, you know, what this is a bit harsher on part but it's true mm -hmm. and uh, when i do for my country there's one or two critics that came to me that were a bit harsh you know but not that much because let's put it in comparisons like for my country has received such a, a great press coverage it's like mm. i never had that in my life and this year i think we are one of the three four french movies that have got this kind of press oh nice so, so you know you have one or two things that can be negative and they're not that negative but these people, sometimes they say one or two things and they are, I'm looking at it and I'm like, wow, this guy was right. This thing, I should have done it better. Uh, maybe this thing should have been done with more sophistication or more thought for me. Mm. Or I should have adapted myself better on set. Sometimes I feel like I have been too stuck on my idea trying to make them work. And you see, I should become a more flexible person. And mm -hmm. this is why he's talking about that because it's, you see, he talks about the outcome. He doesn't know what happened to get there. Me, I know. So I'm trying to see how we see it, we perceive it. And I think about what I... What the process was like and how you can improve it. Exactly. Exactly. So this relationship with critics is for me fundamental. It's so important. So important. Exactly. It's vital. Exactly. So you see, it's, what, it's like, it's what I was like. It's like showing a homeless person in a film. It's vital. It's vital. Yeah. You understand. It's the small thing that I feel we all need. Critical thinking. 100%. Come back to the center. I know. As you know, I've dedicated my life to that. And in your way, you are dedicating your life to that too. You did it in a more efficient way than me. <laughs> no, no, no. Sorry, but uh, you, you did it you much more it beautiful. Into, you made it into a job. <laughs> <laughs> me, I'm just like, a, I'm just a gypsy making movies. Very different. Huh? <laughs> you're, you're too humble. You're too humble. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's beautiful. 
And I think that's a that's a perfect segue to, you know, you're talking about this important critical process and about getting better. So this film is behind us now, right? I mean, you know, even though we're talking about this now, it'll be released here in Taiwan. But as you mentioned, it's already been... I mean, the world premiere of this film was last year at the Venice Film Festival. Right. So it's been one year already. And I'm already like writing the next one. And uh, for me, being here in Taiwan now for this release has to do with the fact that I love the people I worked with and I want to show them all the respect they deserve, you know. And uh, this is a Taiwan-France uh, co-production. You know, people from Taika have been amazing with mm, us. Funding as well, yeah. Funding and also the, the help they provided, you know, the way we continue to work together, you know, be it uh, like last year, we were all together in Venice and it was very important for me to have this Taiwanese delegation with the movie because it's my way to continue to share this baby we made together. And for me, being in Taiwan, right now is like a responsible act towards the movie I made with these people and with the Taiwanese people. So Shane Boumedin is coming ne next week. Oh, nice. To promote the movie. So he will be here to talk to the press, to talk to people. And Shane is... Uh, is Aisa. Aisa himself is, Aisa will be here. Aisa himself is the good looking one. Yes. Come talk to me. Good looking one. <laughs> oh, don't worry. I will send it to I can send him to you if you want to yes. talk to him. No problem. We oh, can beautiful. That. Beautiful. I would uh, love to. Okay, let's do that. Yeah. Okay. This is your next guest. Okay. Beautiful. It's done. Let's do so it. Aisa is coming here and uh, we want to really, you know, give our best to the Taiwanese people because mm. we have uh, this respect for them and we did this movie together. So that's why we are still here one year after. I love it. I love it. No, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And then you hinted at it. So maybe finally, what everyone wants to know, what are you working on? What is the next one? I don't know how much you can disclose at this moment. <laughs> I cannot disclose too much. I just think it will create some limitation to my travelings. But uh, Oh, interesting. Interesting. Uh, it's inspired by true stories and uh, we are working. Oh, this is it. going to be like, uh, this is going to be a political thriller. Oh, wow. We're going to be in something that is close to Syriana or by really? Stephen Gagan or, or, or Traffic by, yeah. by, by uh, Steven Soderbergh. Soderbergh, yeah. So this is some of those kind of hyperlink cinema that we had in the late 2000 that we don't see. We talked about that last yes, time. Yes, yes, yes. Things we, we miss. We miss, yes. It's like those sweet pieces of cinema that were in the middle, you know, mm -hmm. and giving us like something that is questioning us about the world we are living in. So this is what we are trying to write right now. It's very hard. So I just want to show again all my respect for the people that did it before us because it's a tremendous amount of data to swallow, of books to read. A lot of research. A yeah. lot of research people to meet and talk with. So we are in this process for the past like uh, six months now. And so, yes, the next movie will be something like that. I cannot wait. I cannot wait. The world cannot wait. I think it's amazing. <laughs> oh, they have they have other things to watch. I mean, <laughs> there's some great director that did much better than me that are releasing their movies nowadays. So uh, I just want to ask people to never forget that to keep a, a culture that still is diverse in the proposition of content they are, they are receiving. The indie movie industry is still the place where you can find some people taking risk and trying to show you something different from the mainstream things that you can find everywhere. And uh, I say that because uh, I'm a bit worried about how things are becoming. The platform, the streaming have become like a fast food of, of proposition and content. But uh, I mean, how many filmmakers have been discovered on a platform? So we still need cinema, like the dark room where you can meet a movie and you are 
surrounded by other people and share an emotional, subtle link to still find like new ways to tell stories. And I want to encourage people to go watch movies. That's beautiful. Okay. So please, everyone, start with Pour la France here in Taiwan, uh, September 28th, I believe. Do you know, is it throughout theaters or specific theaters? No, it's going to be in many different theaters. Okay. Okay. So any Taiwanese out there, please go take a look at that. And you have a deeper insight now. So yeah, I want to thank you so much for your time. I know you are incredibly busy, man, but thank you so much for these deep insights and amazing stories and really, really inspirational ideas as well. Thank you so much. I'm very happy and proud to to have done this podcast with you. It's it's really nice to be able to have this kind of free speech and and, uh, free exchange. So thanks a lot for your invitation. Likewise. Thank you very much. And when, whenever you're back, we'll, we'll come talk again. With pleasure. I will send you Aisa, the good looking one. Yes. <laughs> yes. I want to see the good looking one. <laughs> the handsome man. <laughs> I will send him. I will send him. Okay. Beautiful. Beautiful. All right. So everyone, thank you very much for listening and we will see you next time with the beautiful, handsome man. <laughs> <laughs> Ciao. Ciao. Oh, beautiful.